All right, good morning. As was already said several times, we are just getting started in a series on Song of Solomon. And uh, Song of Solomon is a book in the Old Testament, a love story in poetry form. So uh, it's got a lot of very high, grandiose statements, a lot of emotions. It's a great book, very different than if you were here for the series we just finished on Matthew, very different than that. And Song of Solomon is the story in chronological order of a couple and their engagement, their wedding day and wedding night, and then their marriage. And encompassing all the joys and the hardships of that, you get to see them anticipating marriage. Uh, in their engagement, they get married, they have a great day celebrating, then they have their wedding and they have this huge fight and they're both sinning and selfish and you get to see how that kind of harms their marriage and how they resolve that and make up and celebrate after that and all that. So you get to see the whole gambit of that. So that is where we're at. I am Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. So Chris and Spencer are the guys you usually see up here, but a few times a year the elders get a chance to preach both to give Spencer and Chris a break every once in a while and also just because preaching is something we value and we value that those who help lead the church would be up here doing some of that. Uh, leading by preaching from time to time. I am excited to preach this sermon. I like this book a lot. Uh, if you're familiar with the book, you could take that a couple different ways. But this is one of those books back in high school as a teenager. I read it and got done and, you know, giggled at a few parts as I was going through and then came to the end and was like, you know, I really have absolutely no idea what this book says. Like, I don't understand the imagery. I don't know what they're saying. So I'll just set that aside and I'll read different parts of the Bible that are easier to understand. And then came back to it after high school, the end of my teenage years, and was reading it again and was like, you know, I still don't understand at all what this book is saying. But it's in the Bible, so maybe I should. So spent some time studying it, got some understanding, and I say that not, uh, not as a piece of boasting or like, ooh, I've spent so much time with the book, but just I am single. And as we go through this book, it talks a lot about marriage. And for those of us who are single, there can be times where you sit there and think, is there really anything in this for me? Is there anything I can get out of this? And there is. I can say from experience and from the fact that God wrote it and writes to everyone that there is a lot for you. So if you're sitting here today and you're married, there will be some great stuff you can take away for your marriage. If you're sitting here and you're married or you're single, there will be great stuff you can take away from your relationship uh, with God. Throughout the Bible, marriage is used as an illustration for the relationship between God and his people. In the Old Testament, God in Israel, and the New Testament, God in the church. And so, as the church as a whole, and then as individuals who are part of the church, there are things we can take away. So there's a lot of great stuff. But, let's get started. Today is Dark But Lovely, Song of Solomon 1, verses 5 through 11. Now, before we get into the text, uh, we've got a few things to talk about. First, we're going to talk about what we're calling the two-sided coin. So, if you hold up a coin, and obviously it has two sides, so you look at one side, and that's the human side. You flip the coin over, and that's the divine side. And so, as we go through, you see throughout Scripture this uh, um, relationship and coexistence of the human and the divine. You see it most clearly and fully in Jesus, who was both fully human and fully divine. He was God and he was man, and if, as I say that, you don't understand exactly how that works or what that means, join the club, because I don't understand exactly how that works or what it means. And Scripture says it's a mystery. No one except God understands exactly how that works, but it does. And so you would expect then throughout Scripture to see the human and the divine in a lot of different ways. And we see that in Song of Solomon. Being Old Testament, uh, the surface reading is a lot more of the divine, or the, a lot more of the human but the divine is present. It's just a little more shadowy, a little veiled, but it's still there. So we're going to talk about both the human and the divine sides as we go through. And then, so, chapter 1, 5 through 11, you'll see uh, when the text is being read, when it's up on the screen, you'll see headings. The headings he, she, and others. Some of your translations instead of others might say daughters of Jerusalem. So, uh, those are not part of the original Hebrew text that's been translated to English, but uh, as they're translating, they look at different things in the text and give these headings so that you know who's speaking. This book is a love story between a man and a woman. 
And there are times where the man is speaking to the woman. There's times where the woman's speaking to the man. There's a third group that's a main character, which is basically the woman's girlfriends, a group of her good friends. And they'll say, give encouragement to the couple, uh, challenge the couple on different things at various points. And so those headings are in there so we know who's talking to make it a little less confusing because it's confusing enough anyway. Uh, I'm not going to read those headings as I read because you can see them right up there. But that's what they are. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats besides the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So, you know, that's fairly self-explanatory, right? Like you've got... uh, She's talking something about curtains, and then apparently she's angry at her mother's sons, and they made her work outside doing stuff. And then it sounds like he uh, calls her a horse later in the passage. (laughs) Hopefully that's a compliment, you know. So, But, you know, so I'll just pray, and then the band will come up, and we'll do communion. Done. (laughs) No, obviously this is complex. The imagery that's used is not imagery we use. I... Uh, expect that most of you men, if you went and called your wife a horse after this, would not receive a favorable response to that. Uh, At least not without the explanation of what it means in this book. So, um, before we get in, kind of going verse by verse and go through the whole passage, Song of Solomon has these key words and phrases that will continue to come up throughout the book. And since we're at the beginning, we're going to start seeing those for the first time. And as those come up, we'll kind of point them out. So as we go through, you can be aware, like, oh yeah, that's one of those phrases that keeps coming up. So one of them is the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 5. And now you know why some translations instead of others say daughters of Jerusalem, because it's in the text. And I'm not really going to say much more about that than what's been said. Uh, They'll be doing a lot more as the book goes on. They'll be in the book a little bit this week but that'll come up more and more. But they're friends of the woman who is one of the two main characters. The other key word is vineyard. So vineyard is going to come up about six, eight more times in the book. And vineyard in Song of Solomon is used three ways. So the first way, sometimes it's just referring to a literal vineyard, like we would think of, you know, like you go to Napa Valley and you see vineyards with grapes growing on them. Sometimes that's what it means. Most of the time, though, it's used one of two other ways. One is uh, they'll talk about their relationship, the man and woman, the couple, as a vineyard, as a vineyard that grows and is pruned and flourishes. The other way is the woman sometimes will refer to her body as a vineyard. And we'll see um, two of those three ways in the passage this morning. The third one won't come up till later. But a literal vineyard, the woman refers to her body as a vineyard, and then the couple The man and the woman at various times refer to their relationship as a vineyard. So those are the three ways. But, like we talked about, that human and divine side, vineyard is not just an illustration we see in Song of Solomon. We see vineyard imagery used throughout Scripture. And it's used to represent God's relationship to his people. So we've got two examples of that. One from Isaiah, the Old Testament. One from John and the New. So Isaiah 5, 7 says... The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So here, uh, a vineyard is used to talk about Israel, the nation that God chose, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And you see that imagery throughout the Old Testament, God referring to Israel as a vineyard. And sometimes it's a vineyard that is well pruned and growing well and bearing a lot of fruit. More often it's a vineyard that's running wild or growing where it's not supposed to, that's in need of some serious overhaul. But we also see that imagery in the New Testament. And we see that uh, Jesus uses this imagery and other writers do to refer to Christ and the church. And we'll look at just one, a few verses from John 15. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there we see uh, the vineyard imagery, and Jesus kind of takes it up a notch, saying, now it's not just that the people of God are a vineyard, but I'm the vine. You're just branches shooting off of me as the vine. All right, so on to verse 5. Uh, so the woman speaks first, and we're going to look at some different things that she's feeling and experiencing, uh, some doubts and fears that she has, and also just some good stuff that, um, some complimentary stuff to herself that she's thinking and kind of talk about that and what's going on. So, I am very dark but lovely, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. So notice she says here, she calls herself lovely. So she doesn't think of herself as like ugly or completely unattractive or anything like that. But I am very dark. So she sees in this loveliness, you can see the contrast there, that there's some imperfection that's present that she wishes wasn't there. There's something she wishes was different about herself. And as we go through, we're going to see specifically it's something about her appearance, not just like her character or how she feels, but about her appearance. That although she say, yeah, I'm lovely, but there's this piece. And if only this piece wasn't there, it would be so much better. And the tents of Kedar, the curtains of Solomon, those two lines tell us uh, more about what she's saying. So Kedar was a people group in Bible times. They were a nomadic people who lived in the desert of Arabia. They were known for their sheep and their goats. Israel and Egypt and other nations around them traded with them. Apparently something made their sheep and goats better than everyone else's. I don't know much about sheep and goats, so I don't know what that would be. But... They were the sheep and goats you wanted to have. And they were a nomadic people. So they moved about the desert. They didn't have permanent housing that they built. And if you're part of a nomadic people group, you're going to use the resources that are available to you for living, for clothing, for shelter, that type of stuff. And what's the thing they add most of all? Sheep and goats. And so, you know, they would use the wool from the sheep for their clothes. They'd use the skins of the animals for the tents that they would live in. And uh, most goats in uh, Old Testament Bible times were dark-skinned and sheep were lighter-skinned. And you see in the Gospels, Jesus uses some of that contrast, contrasting the sheep and the goats. And not as any kind of racial thing, but it's just something, if you have something that's white and black, you look at it, the contrast is very obvious. And so here, the tents of Kedar, their uh, tents would have been made of goat skins, so it would have been dark-colored. And then the curtains of Solomon. So Solomon becomes king. And he declares to the nation of Israel, I am going to build a temple for the Lord and a palace for myself. And they're going to be great. They're going to be the greatest buildings you've ever seen. And to make them the best, he sends out messengers to nations that are around Israel asking for resources. So he sends to one nation that was well known for their wood and said, can we get some cedar from you because you guys have the best trees and we want the best wood to build this stuff with. He sends to others for stone and for gold and other things like that. And in uh, Kings and Chronicles, I don't have it up on the screen, but one of the uh, nations he sends to them and he says, you guys are really skilled you have really skilled craftsmen and craftswomen, people who can make beautiful things out of metal and fabric and uh, stone and things like that. And we w would like uh, to hire some of your people to come and help us build this and make it beautiful. And specifically, one of the things he asks for is workers who have experience working with purple, blue, and crimson cloth to make uh, curtains and coverings for Solomon's palace and for the temple. So when she says here, that she's dark, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She's saying she's dark-skinned. That just like the tents of the people of Kedar were dark-colored because the goats were dark-skinned, that she's dark-skinned. Just like the curtains of Solomon working, uh, which were these dark purples, dark blues, crimson, dark red. She's saying, uh, just like those things that are dark, I am very dark. And we're going to see now with verse 6, this isn't a racial thing. She's not saying that she was born with dark skin. There's something that's made her skin dark. So verse 6, Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. So this dark skin color that she has is not something she was born with, not something genetic. She has a suntan, is what she's saying. The sun has looked at me. Don't look at me because the sun has looked at me. It's shown on me and now I'm tan. Now this is something for us 
in today's day and age, you know, aside from the health benefits or risks of suntan, for a lot of people, sun, a tan body is something that's attractive. It looks nice. You know, you go get a suntan to, you know, you go tan outside or go to a tanning salon or wherever, and it's like, oh, you got a tan, that looks good. Not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you didn't want to be tan, because if you were tan, it meant you were kind of the working class. You had to be outside working. The people who had lighter skin were the ones who could stay inside. They had more money. They had more servants to do the work for them. They could just relax and kind of enjoy the good life. So you didn't want to have a tan back in the day. Now we would look at that, we would say, oh, that's pretty attractive. Back then they would look at it and say, oh, she's one of those middle class girls. She was working in the fields all day. She was outside. She, she doesn't have the good stuff. She's not rich. You know, if I marry her, I won't get a good dowry from her, you know. So that type of thing. So kind of the opposite of how we feel today. And she's embarrassed about this. She's a little ashamed about it. Again, she says, yeah, I'm lovely, but I've got this dark skin. I've had to work. I'm tan. Don't look at this. I'm a little ashamed of this. I'm embarrassed by it. I wish it was different. Second half of verse 6, she tells us how she got that way. My mother's sons were angry with me. And notice the way she phrases that. What are her mother's sons? It would be her brothers or her stepbrothers. But she doesn't say that. She says, my mother's sons. It's kind of like when you've got a couple and they have a kid and one of them's out for whatever reason and the kid does something naughty and they come home and they're like, your child did this. Your child broke this. Your son did this. It's like, well, it's both of our kid, but it's that phrasing that it's like, oh, something bad happened. This was your child. So here, it's kind of a similar thing. She's a little upset with these guys. It's like, my mother's sons made me do this. My mother's sons made me work in the vineyard. So they made me keeper of the vineyards. They're talking about literal physical vineyard. They made her work outside. They had vineyards apparently and she had to work them. Doesn't say any more about why that is or anything like that. And then, but my own vineyard I never, I have not kept. So referring, my own vineyard referring to her body. So she says, I had to work in the fields. I was working hard in the fields. I couldn't work hard on my appearance. You know, I'm kind of dark. I've been out in the fields. I'm sorry. I look this way a little bit. I'm lovely, but I'm kind of ashamed of this. But it's my mother's sons. They made me do it. And I haven't been able to take care of my appearance. So that's kind of how she's feeling. I don't have it on the screen, but if you were here last week, uh, she spends a little bit of time praising the guy that she's in love with and just kind of delighting in him and delighting in who he is, delighting in his kisses, saying, oh, your kisses are great. They're better than wine. I love them. I love being kissed by you better than drinking wine. Uh, it's more delightful. And she's talking about different things. And she says this phrase in here. She says, you know, she talks about all the stuff that's great and then says, no wonder the virgins or the maidens love you. And those would have been women who were single, but who were of the age who could get married. So she's like, here are all these women out there that are available to you. They're unattached. They're mature. They're ready to get married. And they all love you. And you'll see as we go through the book that because uh, these um, doubts that she has about her appearance, about his love will continue to come up in different ways. And a lot of them stem from the fact that she spends time comparing herself to other women that are around him. Rather than focusing on the relationship the two of them have and how he feels about her and how she feels about him and how their love is growing, she'll look at these other women and so it's like, oh, You've got all these other women around you who are single, who love you, who would love to be your wife. And look at that one. Her skin's a little lighter. She's been able to stay inside. Now, are you going to love her more than me? Or are you going to think she's more beautiful than me? Like, it's not my fault. I love you. I just haven't had time to work on my appearance. So she's comparing herself to others. She has these doubts that have been seeping in. You don't need me to tell you that's not something that's confined to this story or this time. That's something that people still deal with. Doubts about physical appearance. I was out shopping yesterday and at the checkout, took the time actually to look at all the uh, magazines on the rack, knowing that I was preaching this this morning, and just looked at the headlines and counted up how many of them were something in reference to beauty and like how to increase beauty or beauty secrets or something like that. And it was a little more than half, like 60% of the headlines um, and the rest were mainly relationship problems stars are having, but that's not part of the sermon, so we won't go there. But, you know, half, you know, you look at those magazines and what you could buy, and half of the featured stories are talking about 
let's talk about your appearance. Let's talk about how we make you more beautiful, how we make you more desirable. And so you start looking at that, you start comparing yourself to other people, and what's it going to do? It's going to start telling you, well, these are the ways you don't measure up, and here are the things you have to do so that you do measure up. So this isn't new. We've got a short video we're going to watch, which uh, visually illustrates this idea really well of how beauty can get distorted and how, like looking at those magazine covers, you may literally be looking at a woman who literally does not actually exist. And that'll be more clear when we watch this. So, surprising as it may be, I don't spend a ton of time on my hair, nor do I wear makeup. So for me, watching the first half of that video, that alone is amazing, just looking at her appearance and how much you can change that just by putting makeup on and changing your hair. But then, when they go into the computer and literally change the shape of her body, lengthen her neck, uh, bring in her collarbone, change the size of her eyes, change the color of hair and eyes, like... It's just shocking. And then you see that billboard and you look at that and someone who drives by that billboard and looks at it and says, I wish I looked like that. It's like, well, the woman on the billboard doesn't even look like that. No one looks like that. That's not real. And so you go looking for that. You make that your standard of beauty, whether as a woman, like I want to look like that, or as a man, I want a woman who looks like that. You're not going to find that because that's not a real person. So uh, the struggle that she's having is not anything new. And we talk about the human and divine. Uh, the human side of that, guys in the room who are married, how do you love your wife? Do you celebrate her beauty? Are you loving her in a way that encourages her to focus on your relationship and the love that takes place there? Or are you acting towards her in a way that makes her think like this woman, well, if only this piece of imperfection wasn't here, he'd love me more. If only I looked a little different like this. And women, um, I am not a woman, so obviously. I do not understand this, but just from what I've been told, what I've seen, I've worked with youth groups for many years, so working with teenagers, just the incredible pressure that women feel to be a certain way, to look a certain way, and that pressure that's just always present. One, be aware that some of what you see is not actually real. Some of what you see and think, maybe I should look like that, no one looks like that, it isn't real. And two, we'll see this today and we'll see it throughout the book, that when you spend most of your time comparing yourself to other people, whether that's what you see in a magazine, in movies, even other friends you have in your life, people that you really know and do look like real people, um, that those things, that's not going to be healthy for you. I'm not saying it's wrong to read fashion magazines or it's wrong to wear makeup or it's wrong to do your hair. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying when you make that your standard of beauty, when you make that the thing that determines whether or not you're beautiful, it's going to be really destructive. That's the great thing. For those of us here who know Christ and follow Christ, there are tons of great things about that. Obviously, the fact that he's dealt with sin and that he's saved us from death are the two biggest. But one of the things that's great is that now things like beauty are redefined around Jesus. And so if God says to you, I love you, and God says to you, you are beautiful, which he does say both of those things, then it's true. And whether or not you feel like that's true right now is beside the point. If God says something is so, it's so. And God says to you, I love you, 
And God says to you, you are beautiful. And he says, yes, there's imperfection there. But I'm the one who's going to deal with that. I'm going to take care of that. You don't have to worry about that. I've got that covered. So, that's where she's at. That's how she's feeling. But even with that, even with those doubts that are present, she still really loves this guy. Look at how she refers to him in verse 7. You whom my soul loves. Not just you who you're kind of okay or you're kind of attractive. There's this deep love. My soul loves. It's not just surfacey. It goes all the way to the soul. And it encompasses all the other parts, the physical and the emotional. But it goes all the way to the soul. And what she wants, she wants to be with him. She doesn't want to be working in the vineyard. She wants to be where he is. Verse 7, tell me where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. So, this guy, shepherding out with his flock of sheep. And now, if uh, I had a wife or a fiancé and she wanted to get a hold of me, wouldn't be that difficult. She could call me, shoot me a text, say, hey, where are you at? I'll meet up with you. Back in the day, not so easy to do. No cell phones back then. And uh, shepherding wasn't just something like, oh, I'm going to be gone for the day, you know, I'll leave at 8 a.m., I'll be back at 5 p.m. They would go out, and they might be gone for weeks or even months, because you've got this flock of sheep, you're herding them, you find some good grazing land, and you're going to be out there for a while. And not only that, but you're going to be moving from place to place, because you go to one area, they eat all that grass, you have to go somewhere else so they have something to eat. So you're moving around. And so her question there is a really good question because he could tell her like, oh yeah, I'm going to go take care of the sheep. We're going to be in this field. And she might go there and he might have had to move on to find other grass or whatever. Or other people might have come and now there are too many shepherds and sheep and it's overcrowded and they have to move on. So she wants to be where he is. Tell me where your flock is. Tell me where you make it lie down at noon. I want to be with you. Genesis 37 shows us a good uh, non-romantic example of this. So Uh, Genesis 37. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. So Jacob, who was Joseph's father, sent Joseph from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. So Joseph's brothers are out taking care of the sheep. They tell their dad and Joseph, all right, we're going to this place near Shechem. And then Jacob, Joseph's dad, is like, hey, go check on your brothers, check on the flock, see how they're doing, maybe bring them some food or other supplies. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, oh, they've gone away. I heard him say, let's go to Dotham. So this is a great example of Joseph knew where to go, but he gets there and they're not there. And notice it says fields. It's not just like you go, okay, here's the field, I don't see him. He's wandering from field to field, probably lots of other shepherds with other flocks, and like, hey, have you seen my brothers? It's 11 guys. They kind of hate me because I was kind of arrogant to them earlier. But So, um, and finally some guy sees him wandering around. It's like, hey, you've been walking back and forth quite a bit. What you looking for? My brothers. Oh, they're not here anymore. They moved on to this other place. So, in a similar way, she wants to know where he is. She wants to be able to find him. She wants to be with him. Even with this doubt about her beauty, in the midst of acknowledging her uh, loveliness, she wants to be with this guy. She loves him. And then the second half of verse 7, For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So we've got a few verses from Genesis 38 that tells us what she means by the phrase, a woman who veils herself. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So what the woman's saying here is, tell me where you're going to be. I don't want to have to wander around and have everyone else think I'm a prostitute. The reason is, so you've got these guys... Usually it was guys who would be the shepherds, not exclusively, but mostly. And they're out with their sheep for weeks, maybe months. And the prostitutes figured out, aha, here are these guys that are alone for months at a time. And they're away from their town. These days, if people want to engage in sexual sin, it's pretty easy to do it and be anonymous. Either on your computer, with real people. We live in a big city. You can go places where you're probably not going to see people you know. You can be kind of anonymous. Bible times, not so easy to do. 
Smaller towns, any of you who have lived in a small town at all kind of know that feel where it kind of feels to a certain degree like everyone knows you and everyone kind of knows what you're doing. And somehow stuff always gets back to your parents like, oh yeah, I saw him Saturday night doing this. How did someone see me? So this was, uh, for the prostitutes, basically a gold mine because you had guys who were out of their town away from accountability, kind of anonymous. No one would be probably see them and report back on them. And... Uh, the woman here does not want to be mistaken for a prostitute. She's like, we're engaged. I love you, you love me. I don't want to have to wander from flock to flock asking, have you seen this guy, have you seen this guy, and have them think, oh, she's looking for the guy. She's one of those women. So, that's where she's at. She wants to be with him. Now, we get to see his response to this. And before we go kind of verse by verse, look at the two ways he refers to her. In verse 8, almost beautiful among women and my love. So almost beautiful among women, he's responding to her statement of I'm dark but lovely. Like, yeah, I'm lovely, but there's this imperfection. There's this part that's not beautiful, this darkness I wish wasn't there. And what's he say? Most beautiful among women. Kind of countering that idea. It's like, no, you're the most beautiful woman. The most beautiful one I know. The most beautiful among women, not just the most beautiful of my women, but of all the women, all these other girls who are around that you're worried about, that are single, that I could marry, that are attracted to me. No, I don't want them. I want you. I'm engaged to you. You're the one I'm in relationship with. You're the one I'm in love with. You're the one I want. And then calling her my love, just like she loves him deeply, he also loves her. So first he's going to respond to her statement about wanting to be with him and wanting to know where he is. And that's verse 8. If you do not know, if you don't know where I go, if you don't know where I am with the sheep, follow in the tracks of the flock. Pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. So saying there, all right, I'm going to tell you where I am, but if I have to move on, you go there, I'm not there. You ask, okay, what general direction did he go? Oh, he went that way. And then what do you do? Well, I've already gone that way with a bunch of sheep, so just follow the tracks. You don't have to make your own way. You don't have to find your own path. Just look at the path that's already there and follow it, and it'll lead right to me. Follow the track the flock made. It'll lead you right to my tent. And then, verse 9, the supposed horse compliment. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. So 9 through 11, he's going to be responding to the fact that she doesn't think she's particularly beautiful. So a mare is a horse, specifically a female horse, which is mature and is of breeding age. As we go through Song of Solomon, you'll see there are some parts where the language is very sexual once they're married. But even when it's not, you get like this undercurrent of sexual desire, and you see that a little bit here, that... He refers to her as a horse, which we'll see why that's a compliment in a minute. But not just any horse, like a female horse that's mature, that's of the age for marriage and uh, bearing young. So a little bit of that desire and that sexual desire seeping into his compliment. So a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Back in the day, Pharaoh's chariots uh, and the horses of Egypt were top of the line. The Bible talks about how the other nations all bought horses from Egypt. They were very expensive. Uh, it talks about what Solomon had to pay to get horses. And he had more money than anyone else in the Old Testament. He was incredibly wealthy, and it cost him a lot to get the horses. They were very expensive. But they were the top-of-the-line horses. And in warfare, horses were kind of the equivalent of a tank now. If you had a horse uh, and a chariot, it gave you increased speed. It gave you increased mobility. It gave you an advantageous position. You could, uh, a lot of them would kind of drive around and they'd have archers in the chariots just picking people off as they drove by. The king or the pharaoh would always ride in a chariot. So if the battle started going bad, they could hightail it out of there really quick because you don't want your leader getting caught by the opposing army. That never ends well. Um, so pharaoh's chariots were top of the line. The chariots of pharaoh and of other nations were pulled not by mares though, but by stallions by male horses. And so, you've got the army of Egypt going into battle, you've got all these chariots, they're being pulled by stallions, they're galloping in, and what opposing armies would do sometimes is you'd take a mare that was in heat, and you'd release it onto the battlefield. 
just to run free. And what would happen is it would run across the field. And so you've got these stallions racing towards the opposing army. And then all of a sudden it's like, ooh, a mare. <laughs> and so they just kind of veer off. And basically you would do this as a way to kind of wreck uh, the chariots and the charioteers because you'd have the horses all get tangled up with each other and overturn chariots and kind of wreck that to even the playing field, especially if you had a nation that didn't have horses and couldn't do that mounted warfare then you would want to wreck that to kind of even the odds a little bit. So what he's saying here is, just like that mare runs across the battlefield and distracts all those horses in a good way, well, not good for the armies, but they desire her. They're not looking at her being like, oh, she's kind of ugly. In the same way, these people that are looking at you, they're not looking at you and thinking, oh, she's darker skinned. She was working in the fields. It's that distraction. Ooh, there's a beautiful woman. He says, in the best way possible, you are distracting. That's the attention you're drawing. That's what people are seeing. They're drawn to you. So, he's saying, yeah, there's that darkness with your loveliness, but people aren't looking at the dark. They're looking at the lovely. They're distracted by you. They think you're beautiful. I think you're beautiful. And then verse 10, he's going to enhance that beauty. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments your neck with strings of jewels. So ornaments being earrings and then strings of jewels being necklaces. And notice what he says here, it's a little bit semantic, but it is important, how he doesn't say, wow, the earrings you wear are really beautiful on your neck. Or the string of pearls or whatever jewels you're wearing are really beautiful. He says, your cheeks are beautiful, with the ornaments. Your neck is beautiful with the ornaments. So he's saying it's her body that's beautiful and the things that are added just enhance the beauty. So the beauty is already there, it just shows it off a little more, which is different than saying like, oh, it's the earring that's beautiful. So your face without it, not so good, but you put the earring on, now you're beautiful. Your neck without the uh, string of pearls or the string of jewels, eh, no thanks. But with the jewels, oh yes. But no, he's saying there's beauty that's there already. We're going to put this on and we're going to enhance that beauty that's already present. We're going to show it off a little bit more. And then verse 11, you've got the others, this uh, group of basically her girlfriends that chimes in. And here they're in full support of his idea. They're like, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. It's like, yes, we think she's beautiful too. We're excited you want to show that off. And so we're going to make you the earrings, and we're going to make it of gold. We're going to take the most precious thing, the most valuable and beautiful thing that we can use to make it, to show off the beauty of the most beautiful woman. So the thing that's already most beautiful, we're going to take the most beautiful thing we can find and ramp up that beauty even more. So, that is the human side of Song of Solomon 1, 5 through 11. And before we get to conclusions, the divine side of that. So, uh, Jesus Christ in the church, is uh, marriage is a representation of that. So in that analogy, Jesus Christ is the husband, the church is the woman. So each of us as a part of the church, and those of us who are believers, we can take things away from her piece of this. So she acknowledges her loveliness, but she thinks there's ugliness there too. And we experience the same thing spiritually. Even as people who are saved, who are in relationship with Jesus and loved by him, we still have sin in our lives. We still have ugliness. And we still look at ourselves and think, ooh, if only this wasn't here. Like, I know you say you love me, but just let me clean this up. Just let me get rid of this piece of ugliness. It's not my fault it happened. Like, this happened and this happened. But let me get rid of it, and then you can really love me. Then I'll really be beautiful. Or, man, look at this other church, or look at this other person in the church and how much more holy they are, or how much more fill in the blank they are. Like, God must love them a lot more. Jesus must love them a lot more because they're not as ugly as me. They're not as dark as me. Whereas Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it all backwards. You are already lovely. I made you lovely. I already love you. And that darkness that's there, that ugliness that's there, yeah, that sin is there, but we're going to deal with that together. You don't get yourself cleaned up first and then come to me and I'm like, oh, now you're beautiful enough for me. I come to you in your ugliness and I make you beautiful. We try and do basically what the video did spiritually, where it literally changes, where they literally changed her body. We try and do that. We try and make changes. It's like, oh, I need to read my Bible more. I need to go to church more. I need to pray more. I need to do this and this and this. I'll do these things to make myself more beautiful. 
And God looks at that and he says, what are you doing? That's not real. That's not really you. I know you and that's not you. You're trying to put on these things that are false. You're trying to change things, but it's just an illusion and I can see behind it and I love you behind it. You don't have to change this to make yourself attractive. I love you. Also, notice uh, the woman's desire here is not to be working in the vineyard, but to be with Uh, the man who's pasturing the flock. And his call to her is not, no, you stay in the vineyard and you work really hard. That'll be good for you. And then I'll come to you eventually. It's like, no, come be with me. I'm the one doing the shepherding and I'll take care of these sheep. Come hang out with me. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus doesn't call to us, you know, you've been working hard, so keep working really hard. And when you've worked hard enough, I'll come to you. It's like, no, come be with me. I'm taking you away from work and away from law into rest and into grace. I have done all the work. I've done all the hard work. You just come and you enjoy what I've done. You come and enjoy me. He says to just follow the path in verse 8. We don't have to make our own way to Christ. We don't have to figure out the way. He's already made the path. Jesus is the path to God. You just have to follow it. You see it right there. You just walk along it. Jesus is right there. We don't have to figure out, okay, where's the path? How do I find it? How do I tell where it is? No, it's right there in front of you. The path has already been made. We just walk on it. Verse 9, uh, Jesus is not calling us a horse. But there is that piece of, have you ever thought about the fact that, of, you know, we think about how God loves us, and we think of that sometimes, and like, oh yeah, he's God, he loves people, he loves us, that's great. But to think of it like a husband who's in love with his wife, who gets distracted by the woman he loves. You know, those times where you're hanging out with someone, they're talking about your wife, their wife, and it's like, yeah, she's so great, and she did this and this and this, and you're like, you said that like 50 times already. Can we talk about something else? But that's how it is when you're in love with someone. You know, you think about them, you talk about them, and that's how it is with God. Scripture talks about how he delights in us. He takes joy in us. He enjoys being in relationship with us. He's distracted by us in the best way possible, and not in the sense of like, as God, I'm holding this mountain together with my power, and then, oh, I got distracted by Chris. Whoops, that mountain fell down again. I hate it when that happens. But no, He loves us. He delights in us. He enjoys being with us. And then verses 10 and 11, he's already made us beautiful. He's made us beautiful. So those of us who believe in Jesus, who follow Jesus, God has made us beautiful. Those who don't, there is still beauty that's present in you because all people are made in God's image. So every person who's ever lived has a degree of beauty because they reflect God to some degree. All of us imperfectly. But especially those who are part of the church, who are Christ's bride, uh, have been made beautiful. And so the things that pour out of that being in love with God, the works that pour out of that, those are not the things that make us beautiful. Those are the ornaments that are hung hung on to enhance the beauty that's already there. So I don't come on a Sunday and think, okay, I'll spend, you know, some time praying and some time reading the Bible and sometimes singing, and I'll do those things, and that'll make me beautiful. It's like, no, no. God's made me beautiful, and he loves me. And as we fall in love with him, the natural outflow of that is to do those things. Just like when you're in love with someone, you naturally think about them, you talk about them, you're excited to be with them, you, en- you want to share in the things that they share, and you enjoy some of the things that they enjoy, you enjoy being with them. So that is the divine side. And now, in conclusion, one, Jesus loves us with a love that eclipses our imperfections. We all have imperfections. We all have things we wish were different about us. Jesus knows all that, and he still loves us. And he doesn't love us thinking, well, I guess I'll kind of love you, but if we could get that cleaned up, that would be great, then I can really love you. It's like, no, Jesus loves us. And he's the one who's going to fix those imperfections. He's the one who's going to change that. Scripture talks about how uh, as we're in relationship with Christ, day by day we're transformed more into his image. So uh, not physically necessarily, but in various ways we resemble Christ a little bit more each and every day. And it says that eventually when we die and we stand before him face to face, in that moment that we see him, in 1 John it says, when we see him, we will be like him. And so that change that's happening gradually, that moment will come where we see Jesus, 
and instantly that change will be completed. All the dark, all the sin will be gone, and there will only be beauty and only perfection left. And that'll happen in a moment. It happens a little bit at a time now, but it'll happen in an instant there. And that's the fact that God loves us and God is making us beautiful. Those things are true whether we feel like it or not. Just like a couple that's married. Every single moment of their marriage is not going to feel super delightful and awesome. There are going to be times that are hard, times where you're angry with each other, where you're grieved at each other. If anyone is shaking their head, you are mistaken. Um, but you're still in love in those moments. You still love each other, and that love continues to grow through those hard times. It's the same with the relationship with God. I don't wake up every day saying, oh, it's so great that today I can spend time reading the Bible or I can spend time praying to God. I want to feel that every day, but I don't feel that every day. There are times you get up and you just don't feel that. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. That doesn't mean you're not in a relationship with him. And that doesn't mean that those things aren't valuable to do not to make God love you more, but as a response to the love that he's already given you. So even in times where we don't feel beautiful, that God's transforming us and taking care of sin, where we don't feel loved by God, we still are. God loves you and God has and is and will deal with the sin in your life. Those are things he's stated. Those are truths, whether or not we feel it. Just like in a marriage or in an engagement or dating relationship, you might not always feel something, but that doesn't mean that the relationship, that uh, you might not always feel it, but that doesn't mean it's not present in the relationship. He loves us with a love that eclipses our imperfections. Two, we're not responsible for the vine. In John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the one doing the hard work. I'm the one that sucks the nutrients out of the ground and feeds them off to the branches. You're just a branch hanging on to the vine. You're just there, and you just bear fruit. Just like a real grapevine, obviously grapevines don't think, but a grapevine, a branch on it, doesn't sit there thinking, I have to make grapes, I have to make grapes, I have to make grapes. No, it just happens. A grapevine that's healthy will naturally produce fruit. Being in relationship with Jesus these other things will flow out of that. You don't sit there thinking, oh, I have to be more holy, I have to do this, I have to do this. It's like, no, just be in love with Jesus and those other things will follow from that. And even in those times where you feel like it's not following, that love is still present. So, those of us in the room, those who are married, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Like this guy loves this woman. Those times where she doesn't feel beautiful, where she's embarrassed or ashamed of physical or non-physical ugliness that she sees, encourage her. Love her. Tell her the things that delight you about her. About her character. About her body. About her mind. Women, know that you are loved and you are beautiful. Whether you feel it or not, it's true, because God has said it's true. And if God says something, is so it is so. You are beautiful, and you are loved. For the married women. For the single women, same thing. Know that you're beautiful and you're loved. If you uh, polled the women in here who are married and asked them, you know, do you enjoy being married? Do you love your husband? Yes. Is marriage a great thing? Yes. Has marriage met all the needs you ever have had? Has marriage been all that you ever hoped it would be? Has it been the complete fulfillment of all things in your life? Oh, no. No, no, no. No. I married you a guy. He's a sinner, just like I am. So, of course, it's not perfect. Jesus Christ is the greatest love that we'll ever have. And I say that as someone who's also single. So it's not like I say that, and then later I can just go make out with my wife, and it's like, sorry for those single people. It's like, no, this is true. As someone who is single, I can attest to the fact that even though I don't always feel it, Jesus Christ has been all I need in my life. I would still enjoy being married someday, but if it never happens, God is enough. It doesn't always feel like he's enough. I don't always respond like he's enough, but he is enough. Single guys in the room, uh, how do you treat women? Do you ever think about the fact that all around them, the world is telling them, you're not beautiful enough. You're not good enough. Here's what you can do to be more beautiful. Here's what you can do to change. 
But you look at the example in Song of Solomon with the suntan and how it changes. The thing that the world tells them today will make them beautiful. Next year, you'll be like, well, that was last year. Now you have to do the opposite or you have to do something else. Do you care for the women in your life as though they're beautiful? Because they are. Verbally, with your words and with your actions, what are you communicating to the women in your life as someone who's single? And as a single guy, I'll be the first to admit I don't often do this. I don't always do this perfectly. I don't even always do it well. So you can pull the women in the room who are my friends, and I'm sure they could give examples. Uh, You don't need to do that, but you could. (laughs) But that's okay, because I'm loved by Jesus, who loves me with a love that eclipses my imperfections. Husbands in the room, you're going to fail to love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, you're going to fail to believe you're beautiful. Singles, you're going to fail. We're all going to fail. But that is all right in the sense that our relationship with Christ is not based on that. Our relationship with each other is not ultimately based on that. We are loved by a God whose love eclipses our imperfections. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. But that's okay because Jesus' love overcomes that. And don't try and be the vine. Don't try and make those things happen. God has already done that for you. Just enjoy what God has done. As we fall more in love with him, that will grow naturally. So, we've talked some about love, about God, and now we're going to celebrate the fullest expression of love that's ever been uh, with communion which is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So, at Hiawatha, we practice what's called open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of Hiawatha, you don't have to be a member of any church to take communion here. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus, that you believe in Jesus, that you trust him. And the reason we ask that is because the Bible asks that. Because it says what actually happens when you take communion is you're declaring Jesus' death and resurrection. You're remembering that. You're remembering, yeah, Jesus came... He lived, he died for my sins, and God raised him from the dead saying, yes, Jesus' death worked. It is sufficient payment for sins. So if you're here and you don't believe that and you come up and take communion, you're declaring before God something that you don't believe. And so the Bible says you're then bringing judgment on yourself. But if you're here right now and you don't believe that, that's something that can change right this moment. There's no fancy form you have to sign. There's no class you have to go through. You don't have to have one of the pastors come up and perform some kind of faux wedding ceremony. All it is is to believe in and trust in Jesus. It's just that uh, all it means is you believe, yeah, there's some darkness in the loveliness that's present. But God loves me. And what he's done through his death and resurrection, what Jesus has done, takes care of that darkness, that sin. It overcame it. And that's what it is to love God. That's what it is to be in relationship to him, to believe that that's true even when we don't feel it. So I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come back up. They're going to play some songs. And during that time, everyone, you can feel free to come down and take communion. And there will be people up front also to pray if there's anyone who'd like prayer about something specific or if you just don't have anything specific but generally want to be prayed for. We'd love to pray for anyone who wants it. If you don't want to be prayed for, that's fine. We're not up there like taking notes and no one's going to be like, oh, they didn't get prayed for, bad person. So, no, you should be focusing on Christ during this time, not on whether or not people are getting prayed for or taking communion. So, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for a love that is greater than life and death. A love that caused you to come and live among us and die for us and be raised from the dead to save us from ourselves, to do what we couldn't, to show us the path that we couldn't walk ourselves, to show us a love that we couldn't find ourselves. We praise you for that. I pray, God, that everyone here would know your love today, would know that that love is not based on what they do, but on you and who you are. Amen.